Well, amen to that, huh? Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to remind you of men's ministry tomorrow night in the uh, adult Sunday school room, 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. Romans chapter 8, we're in verse 5, and I'll read through verse 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. The text says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Tonight we have the privilege again of coming to this great portion of Scripture here in Romans 8. I told you last time that when you look at the Bible, you see the Bible is a very condemning book. Uh, it promises uh, divine judgment for sin and rebellion, and that promise is everywhere. Uh, the promise is severe unto eternal uh, uh, punishment. Uh, you see it from the beginning of the book all the way to the end of the book of uh, uh, the, the Bible. Uh, everybody born in the world has fallen. Everybody is object of God's righteous wrath. We have inherited uh, an eternally damning condition uh, known as sin. It is within us. Uh, there's nothing that we can do to eradicate it in and of ourselves. There's no way out of this situation, no way that we by ourselves can solve our problem of sin. And uh, we are uh, awaiting the just eternal execution that we all deserve because of our sin against a holy God. That's, the, so, that's life in this world. And the world is so dominated and infected by sin that even the physical creation itself uh, strains under the negative effect of sin's harmful consequences. It is a world full of natural disasters from hurricanes to tsunamis to earthquakes. It is a world full of disease and death, corruption, heartache, and trouble. Uh, so much so that, again, even the uh, physical creation longs to be set free from the slavery of corruption uh, because of sin's devastating influence upon it. That is why, with that background, that is why when you come to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and see those wonderful uh, words, that great announcement uh, of the good news that we who were once under judgment with an unpayable debt, enslaved to sin, uh, in bondage to unrighteousness, condemned, uh, dead in trespasses and sins, under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience, children of wrath. And you come to that glorious, great good news, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Tremendous, tremendous words. God in his wonderful kindness and his grace, his mercy through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, has removed us from the realm of condemnation. And it's because of our association with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that we are in Christ, uh, he has brought us uh, into that status of no condemnation. It's the person of the Holy Spirit by his work who uh, convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, as it says in John uh, 16. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, and then he produces faith in us. He again brings us from death spiritually to life spiritually. He causes us to be uh, born again, or as uh, John says, uh, uh, born from above. We come to chapter 8. It's really the person of the Holy Spirit uh, who is on display. I mentioned that he's uh, only mentioned, the Holy Spirit's only mentioned once in the previous uh, seven chapters. It's in chapter 5, uh, verse 5. But here in uh, chapter 8, he's mentioned nearly 20 times. 
Now, I want to say a few things about the Holy Spirit to make sure that we understand who he is and make a, a, a proper understanding that he's not just some kind of influence or a personal divine power emanating from God, a la uh, George Lucas and the Force. I told you that George Lucas is a theologian more than he is a, um, a filmmaker. I know he's a filmmaker, but he's trying to teach you a worldview that's not true, right? So the, the Holy Spirit's not a force. He's not a power. Uh, there's not this good good force, bad force conflict going back and forth. Right? The, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has all the characteristics of personhood. Uh, he, uh, he possesses and manifests uh, with a functioning mind. He has emotion, a will. Uh, he loves the saints. He communicates with the saints. He teaches them, guides them, comforts them, chastens them. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can be quenched. He can be lied to tested, resisted, and blasphemed, all the characteristics of personhood. And the Holy Spirit is the blessed third person of the Trinity. Uh, Obviously, the doctrine of God is one of the most fundamental, foundational doctrinal truths in in Scripture. Biblically, the doctrine of God is that God is one, yet he exists in three persons. And the person of the Holy Spirit is often not respected as much of as a divine person uh, as the Father and the Son are, but nevertheless, he is God of very God, and we need to understand that. He is he. It's not, he's not an it. Again, he's not a power. Uh, he is a person, co-equal, co-eternal with both God the Father and God the Son. And when the Bible speaks of the person of the Holy Spirit, it speaks of his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. Uh, his divine glory, His holiness. He is called uh, God. The Holy Spirit is called God. He's called Lord. He's called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of Jehovah. He's called the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus. He is the comforter and the advocate of true believers. And the Bible reveals the fact that when the Holy Spirit uh, is uh, one who is fully active with the Father and the Son in, in the creation of the physical universe, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is with believers and he enables them and empowers them. And he came upon believers even before Pentecost and uh, enabled them and empowered them. He again is the one who's ever convicting men of sin and uh, bringing salvation to those who repent and place their faith upon Christ. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who teaches God's people, who helps them uh, to understand God's written word, to worship and to obey, to serve God rightly. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who's the divine agent who comes upon uh, God's servant, who came upon God's servants and sovereignly uh, sovereignly chosen men to pen the inspired word of God, of the Bible. And again, it's the person of the Holy Spirit who creates and sustains and perseveres uh, spiritual life in those who believe upon Christ. It's always been the person of the Holy Spirit by which true believers serve God and have served God because true believers serve not by their own human might or human power, but they serve by the power of the Holy Spirit, as it says in Zechariah 4, verse 6. It's the Holy Spirit who is involved in Jesus' conception as a human being. It was the Holy Spirit who was there at his baptism, his anointing, his temptation, his teaching, his miracles, his death, and even at his resurrection. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who came in his fullness at Pentecost and indwelt permanently true believers, illuminating their understanding and the application of the Word of God, as well as empowering them at Pentecost to speak forth the wonderful deeds of God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings spiritual life to those who believe in Christ, and he is the, the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who will ensure every two, true believer will be finally brought to eternal glory. 
So it's the person of the Holy Spirit who's active here. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who fills every believer, who seals every believer, who communes with them, who fellowships with them, who intercedes for them, comforts them, admonishes them, sanctifies them, enables them to resist sin and to, again, serve God. So when we come to chapter 8, the person of the Holy Spirit is uh, uh, fully on view. And it's the person of the Holy Spirit who has taken us from chapter 7 if you will, but from the realm of, condemna- of, of condemnation to chapter 8, therefore there's now no condemnation. All right? It's the person of the Holy Spirit that does that. All right? It's the person of the Holy Spirit that's allowed the believer to pass from the realm of sin and death and now stand into the realm of grace, being justified before God because of his union with Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us into that position, the Holy Spirit who brings us into a position where we're set free from the condemnation of the law. Again, which is sin sin and death, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So again, it's the person of the Holy Spirit who uh, produces repentance and faith. He's the one who regenerates. He's the one who applies to us the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Again, we were condemned. We were under severe judgment. We are under eternal judgment with no way out, no way to please God. The law couldn't help us. Uh, we couldn't obey the law. Therefore, God intercedes. God the Father intercedes. He sends Christ uh, to our rescue. Christ the sinless one comes as a man, the holy, harmless, sinless, undefiled Christ becomes the uh, sacrifice, the, the Lamb of God, and he was offered on, uh, uh, the Calvar- on Calvary's cross as we just sung. And it was his sacrifice that uh, uh, satisfied the justice of God. Again, he bears in his own body our sin on the cross. And again, through the substitutionary work, uh, salvation is brought to us by the work of Christ, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, who again awakens us from the dead. And not only that, but it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to fulfill God's law. Verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If we're going to have a relationship with God, then it can't just be a positional, or we can't just have a positional righteousness before God. We need a practical righteousness before God. Christ bearing our sins on the cross is uh, our substitute. Uh, his righteous is, righteousness is credited to us, imputed to us. Uh, we are legally declared uh, righteous, not guilty, justified, no longer under condemnation. But as I said previously, justification alone doesn't lead us to the righteous requirement or the righteousness, uh, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled fully in us. We need not just a positional righteousness, but we need an actual righteousness. And again, that's what happens to us in Christ. We're given a holiness, which the writer of the book, the book of Hebrews says, no one without, no one will see the Lord. Right? We're given the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. So when we come from spiritual death, and are regenerated to spiritual life, we're not only credited the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, we're actually given the new life of Christ, our new life in Christ, right? Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? He gives us his righteousness. He transforms us. He changes us from the inside out. Now, when we're going through chapter 7, we understand the issue of the flesh, our unredeemed humanness. Uh, uh, We still battle with that. We're imperfect. But in Christ, he has transformed and changed us, right? He is transforming and changing us. Again, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that 
the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So God takes all of our sin, places it upon Christ, and in turn judges Christ in our place, and now we're justified. Then the Holy Spirit obviously regenerates us. He brings to us new life uh, uh, spiritually and grants to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. Christ takes our sin in exchange. We are given his perfect righteousness. Uh, God treats Christ as if he had lived our sinful life. And at salvation, he treats us as if we have lived Christ's perfect life, the one who fulfilled all righteousness in his earthly time. And that life is granted to us, imputed to us, and we are changed practically, uh, really changed, right? It's a reality, changed from the inside out. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a what? New creature. That's change, right? Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So again, the Holy Spirit saves us, he regenerates us, he gives us faith to believe, he delivers us from condemnation, he delivers us from the principle of sin and death, and then the Holy Spirit, through his regenerating work, because of the work of the the person of Jesus Christ, applies to us the all-sufficient, perfect righteousness of Christ himself, uh, Christ himself to our account. And then that perfect life of Christ, the one who fulfilled all righteousness, is given to us, is credited to us. So that, verse 4, the righteous or the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that in Christ, right, we are able to obey. We're able to obey and to fulfill God's law perfectly. And he says, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I said before, that's the definition of a Christian. That's the definition of a Christian. The one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I told you the word walk, it really is a metaphor, uh, the bent of a person's life, the direction of a person's life, his habits, his lifestyle. The Christian is one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Christian now, in Christ, is one who has a bent towards righteousness, uh, a bent towards obedience. Uh, he walks according to the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, because it's the person of the Holy Spirit who has come in and dwelt within us, and the person of the Holy Spirit who has now changed our nature. And as I said previously, uh, um, salvation is not just a forensic act or act or forensic declaration. It's a real literal transformation. That's conversion, conversion of life. The change that happens to us, we're different once Christ comes. Once we're indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, we're different from who we used to be. There's a newness of life that comes in us. Because the Christian is one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, you might remember last time I told you that phrase, the Christian is one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That, that's not a command of Scripture. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. Again, it's a definition of what it means to be a Christian. It's a statement of fact. The Christian is one who doesn't walk. The, the bent of his life is not according to the flesh. The bent of his life is according to the Spirit. And, and that's a categorical, uh, undeniable truth without exception. And what Paul is saying by that statement is this. Those whom God justifies, listen, those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. He's going to make us look like his son Christ. He's going to make us look like his children. Right? If he says if he's, he's going to make us look like we belong to him, he's not going to allow us to look like the children of the devil. And it's the work of God, the triune God, that frees us from sin's penalty and from sin's power that comes and transforms us and changes us from the inside out. The Christian is one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because we have a new nature, a new disposition, a new operative principle of life placed within us. Because, again, there's no such thing as justification. 
There's no such thing as a legal declaration of no condemnation and the status of having the requirement of the law fulfilled in us without the reality of sanctification. Now, I want you to do is just very quickly turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to show you that. I know it's a very familiar portion of Scripture, but you can see it there very clearly. Ephesians chapter 2. And you can see that principle. There's no such thing as justification without the reality of sanctification. Ephesians 2 and 1. Who were we? Well, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness, of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Verse 10 is really what I want to draw your attention to. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's regeneration. That's regeneration. That's the new creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's what happens at conversion. God takes your life and takes it a new direction. There's a new emphasis. There's a new uh, righteous desires that are placed within you. There's a love for God and a love for Christ that wasn't there before you came to faith in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the new you in Christ. And the new you in Christ takes on a whole different direction than the old you apart from Christ. Turn over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2, now we are children of God, children of God, and it has not appeared yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as, excuse me, he is pure. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse 7, little children, do not let no one deceive you. No one who practices righteous, or let me say, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, right? When we repented and we placed our faith in Christ, we were made new creatures, new creations in Christ. Born again by the person of the Holy Spirit, saved by grace through faith. Now we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, changed transformed again from the inside out verse 8 the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil sinned from the beginning and the son of god appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil verse 9 no one who's born of god practices sin because his seed abides in him he cannot sin because he's born of god verse 10 
By this, the children of, the de- of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So again, he's saying, look, the sanctifying power of the person of the Holy Spirit begins at justification, and it ensures our sanctification. And, and that process that began at justification proceeds all the way through our life, the process of sanctification. We respond to the ever-present power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are no longer in Christ, no longer dominated by our sinful flesh. We're now new works in Christ, created in Christ Jesus. Does our sinful flesh rise itself up? Of course it does. We have to do battle with it. But we're no longer dominated by it because there's another, a new controlling power. In Christ, our life takes on a new direction. In Christ, we no longer do exclusively what the devil wants us to do. In Christ, we now do what God wants us to do. Why? Because we love him. He saved us. He's changed us. The pattern of our life is different in Christ. Now we have holy desires, holy aspirations. Titus 2.14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Verse 14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's why you were saved. Not to stay in the position you were, but to be purified by the person of the Holy Spirit, that you might be his possession, that you might be zealous for good deeds. Because whom God justifies, he sanctifies. The promise of transformation is not just in the New Testament. Obviously, it's in the New Testament, but you see it in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah 31, 33, I'll just read it for you. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Something's going to happen next. Verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity, their transgressions, uh, and their sin I will remember no more. Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, starting in verse 25, says something much uh, along the same lines. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, then God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinance, all my ordinances. That against conversion, a real change from the inside out. The Holy Spirit, again, he awakens us from from the dead. He frees us from the principle of sin and death. He enables us to satisfy the law of God by the imputed righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. Now go back to Romans 8. Pick it up in verse 3. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And I want you to pay special attention to the end of verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That verse tells us there are only two kinds of people in the world. Have you heard that before? Only two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. 
And listen, God never divides men by race as the predominant false religion of our day, critical race theory does. God never divides men by race. Why? Because there are no races of men. There's only one race. It's Adam. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. God never divides men by the color of their skin. God doesn't divide men by their economic status. God doesn't divide men by their education. God doesn't uh, divide men by the country in which they were born or any other physical designation. The only issue that is important are those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. Again, meaning there are only two kinds of people in the world and that's it. If we're going to believe, if we're going to be Bible believing individuals, if we're going to live in a fallen world that's lost its mind completely, that has a mind that doesn't function properly, we better start believing the truth, the true truth. We better stop buying into false categories of things that don't exist like race. Not allow that stuff to come into uh, our uh, fellowship. Not allow that kind of stuff to come into our teaching, our hearing, our, our thoughts. Well, you know, we got to... No, no, no. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk according to the flesh and those according to the spirit. That's it. That's how God sees mankind. We need to see the truth as God sees the truth. Again, I know I spoke on that issue out of John 8. I didn't really realize till this afternoon as I was reading through my notes that there's a lot of overlap. But that's the way it is. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit's book, not mine. There are no other legitimate divisions in the realm of mankind, period. No other legitimate divisions in the the realm of mankind except those who walk according to the spirit and those who walk according to the uh, those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. So we better get hold of that. And when we come to these verses here, five through eight, we're going to see again. There's only these two classes of people: only believers and unbelievers. Only the uh, saints and the ain'ts, as they say. Those who are justified and those who are still condemned. We need to understand that. What did I say this morning? To make sure when you're talking to somebody about the truth, you don't get taken off into a rabbit trail. I mean, the rabbit trails that are out there today are, are epic. We'll run you around everything in this direction and that direction, everything except anything but the truth. You thought the comment about aliens was crazy. Do you remember just a few months ago, there was this problem, that problem. All of a sudden, we started talking, the government or the uh, the newscasters started talking about aliens. Where in the world does that come from? It's crazy talk. I told you this before. I went to see my aunt a long time ago who was sick, dying, lung cancer. Tried to talk to her about faith in Christ, repentance. She wouldn't listen. And her husband said, well, I, I don't believe that kind of stuff. And I kid you not, you think I'm going to joke with you. I'm not. I kid you not, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. But oh, last week there was an alien who landed in the backyard. Really? Yeah. But I don't believe in that Jesus stuff. Okay? We better get a hold of the true truth. And when we come to the text of Scripture we're going to look out tonight, look at tonight, we're going to see the true truth. Only two kinds of people in the world. Now, again, some have suggested, and I think rightly, that perhaps this is maybe the most important or vital part of chapter 8, this section of Scripture, because it really does, again, define for us what it means to be a Christian. And again, it demonstrates the fact that if you've been justified by faith, then you will be sanctified. 
Because again, there's no one who's justified by faith whose life is not dramatically altered or transformed or changed by the person of Jesus Christ. Everybody who has escaped the realm of condemnation and has been brought into the realm of of grace, which God has done, God will continue to do a work in that person's life, a radical work in that person's life. Because again, we are new creations in Christ. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God himself has prepared. Again, Paul's going to lay out very clearly the contrast here. So there's no mistake who belongs to Christ and who does not belong to Christ, who is a genuine believer and who is not. And if a person makes a claim to be a Christian and yet is not living like a Christian, then that person's claim to Christ is indeed a false claim. Because the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit transforms and changes us from who we once were to who we are now in Christ. The person who says that they are a child of God and yet lives like a child of the devil gives evidence of the fact that they have not passed out of death unto life, that they are still under God's condemnation. So again, Paul's going to lay out the contrast here between the non-Christian and the true Christian. And again, I'm going to repeat it and say there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are saved and those who are not saved. There was a popular teaching, and I think it's still somewhat popular, I've told you about this through our study in the book of Romans, that says, well, no, no, there's actually three classes of people. You have the unsaved, you have the saved who are spiritual, and then you have the saved who are carnal. That's the teaching. It's an unbiblical teaching. And verses 5 through 8 is not a contrast between so-called carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian, because, again, those categories don't exist. The Bible says very clearly there's now no condemnation only for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, if you call yourself a Christian and live like the devil, if you live like the world, like the unsaved man and still claim Christ, it is the height of presumptuous sin at best. For what would make a man think that he can live like the devil and still go to heaven? Except the deception of sin the deception of Satan himself, the deception of false teachers. What does the Bible say? Not that, what, what does Bill say? What does the Bible say on the issue? That's the, the Bible's always the authority. And the Bible says, again, justification and sanctification always go together. There is a change, a radical change in the nature and the character of the one who has come in union with Christ. It's always a reality. Those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. He conforms us moment by moment. It's a process. I got that. But we're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what I want to do tonight is something very simple. I just want to look at one side of this equation. I just want to look at the text here and look at the characteristics of the non-Christian. I'm going to look at that first, and then we'll go back to look at the characteristics of the Christian. So in this portion of Scripture that I just read, Paul's going to lay out five things that are true about the non-Christian. I'll give them to you here kind of like a machine gun, but then I'll go back to them as we work our way through it. First, he says, the non-Christian sets his mind on the things of the flesh, verse 5. 
The non-Christian is spiritually dead, verse 6. The non-Christian is hostile towards God, verse 7. The non-Christian will not and cannot subject itself to the law of God, again, verse 7. And then the non-Christian cannot please God. So the first thing that's true about the non-Christian, he sets his mind on the things of the flesh. Again, that's verse 5. For those according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Now, the word flesh in the Greek is sarx. It's a word that has a variety of different meanings. In most basic sense, sarx, S-A-R-X, transliterated, means flesh, the fleshly parts of the body. We, a very, I guess, straightforward translation would be carnal. From the Latin word carnal, meaning meat. Uh, but the word sarx here has this meaning. It comes from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Fallen human nature... Human nature before the Spirit of God has begun to work in a person. The flesh means a man left to himself, man born, developing, and growing in life in this world outside the activity of God upon him. That's a good definition of the flesh. This is a man with a fallen human nature before the Spirit of God has begun to work on him. That's what he's talking about. Those who are in the flesh. So the non-Christian are those who are according to the flesh. The NIV says those who live according to the sinful nature. It just means that they're simply under the power, the domination of the dominion of the power, the authority uh, of their flesh, of their fallen natures. And it's a continuous action. It's the bent of their life. It's the bent of their life. It's their fundamental essence or disposition. The, the non-Christian has habitually dominated by the nature with which they were born and the nature with which they were born is sin. So those who are according to the flesh, the non-Christian was born in sin, he exists in sin, and he continues sinning. So the first thing that is true about the non-Christian is that he has set his mind on the things of the flesh. Now, sets his mind, three words in the English is one word in the Greek, and it means to be absorbed with something. To be absorbed with something, to focus sharply on something. And it's not just an occasional glance, but it's living uh, one's life with the mind set on the things of the flesh, absorbed with the things of the flesh. The entirety of their lives resolves around living for the things of the flesh, the things of this world. Sets his mind. uh, The word mind means thoughts, understandings, affections, emotions, desires, patterns of thought. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, the things of the flesh are the things they think about, the things that they desire, the things that they make the object of their pursuit, the object of their affections. So the non-Christian has his mind set on the things of the flesh. That's where his uh, heart is. That's where the devotion of his heart is. That's what he has devoted his life to, the things which are, that dominate his life, the things of the flesh. Now, what exactly are the things of the flesh? Well, they're not just the sensual things. They're not just the things related to physical sins. They are uh, those things, but they're more than just the deeds of the flesh. Remember that list in uh, Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these. They are those things, but they're more than just those things. The things of the flesh really are all things that don't belong in the category of the things of the spirit. They're all things that don't belong in the category of the things of the spirit. And the things of the flesh mean that, again, every aspect of this person's life 
uh, without God. Every aspect of his life is apart from God. Everything in his life is with God excluded. That's a person who has his mindset on the things of the flesh. And again, they're not just open, obvious sins. They could be. But they're really actions, attitudes, thought patterns. Anything and everything apart from interests in God. Anything and everything apart from honoring God. Could be anything. Could be social interests apart from God. It could be political interests apart from God. Could be economic interests apart from God. It could be cultural interests apart from God. And again, the non-Christian are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, you know, they could even be outwardly very moral, upstanding individuals. They could be very genu- gen- uh, genuine or generous. They could be very uh, philanthropic. They could be those who are well-spoken. Upright. They might even be religious. But they live their life apart from God. Apart from uh, uh, intending to honor God. Apart from the interests of God. They live their life according to the flesh. Why? Because they have their mind set on the things of the flesh. So that's number one. Number two, uh, Paul tells us that the non-Christian is spiritually dead. Verse 6. For those according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind of the sinful man is death, it says in the NIV. Uh, to be carnally minded is death, the New King James says. So the non-Christian has devoted his life to the pursuit of those things that are apart from God and apart from the influence of God. Indulging the flesh and its corrupt desires, as it says in Second Peter 2 and 10. The unbeliever is in a state of death, spiritual death. The unbeliever might be alive physically, but he's dead spiritually. Dead to the things of God. Does not understand the things of God. The things of God make no sense to that person. Uh, that person won't accept the things of God. 2 Corinthians 2 and 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. You know that. You know people like that. To you, the Bible, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most wonderful thing on the planet, you start to talk to somebody who's a, a, a set on the flesh, and you start to talk, talk to them about Christ and about the Word, and there's just a blank stare. They don't care. They have no understanding. The unconverted man lacks the ability to understand the things of God. Why? Because he lacks the supernatural power, the supernatural life of the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells all true believers. The Holy Spirit who who illumines the word of the living God so that we can, who are truly saved, understand it and apply it. Those who don't have the spirit, don't, don't have the spirit of life in Christ, uh, the Holy Writings, the Holy Spirit, not indwelling in them, the, the Word of God makes absolutely no sense to them because they're spiritually dead. And the non-Christian walks in the futility of his mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They're callous. They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, as it says in Ephesians 4. That's a non-Christian. 
Now, the non-Christian, however, could appear, again, outwardly, looking pretty good. This person outwardly could look like he's a man of culture, that he's a, a moral individual, one who doesn't commit overt acts of sin. He doesn't drink, doesn't cheat, doesn't never committed adultery. But his mind is set on the things of the flesh, and the mind set on the flesh is death. Again, his mind is completely dead to God and the things of God. And again, the ungodly, the unregenerate man daily walks in the futility of mind. His life is empty, vain, without meaning. I tell you this all the time. You know, one of the most basic questions that a child would ask is, what is this? And the next question would be, what is this for? And when I ask people who don't, who aren't believers that question, who are you and what are you for? They think I've got like two heads or something. But it's the most basic question that your children ask you as a father. Daddy, what is this? It's a pin. Daddy, what is it for? This is how it works, right? And mankind has absolutely no idea. He's rushing as fast as he can towards hell. He has no idea what he is or why he's there or what he's for. He's just been told his entire life. He, he, he evolved out of ooze. He's uh, related to monkeys and uh, came out of slime and has no purpose and uh, no value in life. And then he just lives his life that way in futility. And we go, what's wrong with that person? And I go, well, what's wrong with us? We've told him his entire life that's who he is. Why would we expect something different with the way they live their life? The man who sits his mind on the things of the flesh, the mind of the flesh, uh, that person, that person is dead, right? Again, completely dead to God. Walking in futility, no meaning, no understanding, no purpose in life. Why? Because they don't have the ability to think godly. Now, they fail to produce in their life godliness. They fail to produce in their life biblical moral living. They, they fail to produce lives that are honoring to God. Because, again, ungodly have their minds that have... a uh, been tested and found wanting by God, as we see in Romans chapter 1, useless, depraved minds that don't work properly. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They're cut off, spiritually separated from God. Ignorant of the truth because of their willing spiritual darkness, willing spiritual darkness, blind, hard to God's truth. And again, the natural man, the non-Christian, lives his life like God doesn't exist. Like he has no responsibility to him. That's the non-Christian, completely dead spiritually. For the mindset on the flesh is death. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know Christ. He's outside the life of God, outside the life of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you know this person. He takes up the Bible to read and it makes no sense to him. You know this person, you can hear the greatest preaching on the planet about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it makes no difference to him. The word you hear, and it impacts your life, and you honor God, and you worship Christ, and you're so thankful for your salvation. The man who's spiritually dead goes, what a waste of my time. Can't believe you people show up and waste your time. They can't. The mindset on the flesh is death. And I think the greatest tragedy about this category of person, uh, this aspect of the non-Christian, is that many wrongly assume this person is only outside of places of worship. Many wrongly assume that this man who has his mind set on the things of the flesh, the one who has his mind set on death, 
The one who doesn't know God or doesn't know Christ has to be certainly somebody who's a very vile and wicked and morally depraved outward individual outside the visible church. But I think that's an error. I think that's a great deception, a great tragedy. Because the fact is there have been many, and there are even now, a great many of these kinds of people inside visible places of fellowship, visible houses of worship, inside the visible church. There's a great number of individuals like this with their minds set on the flesh, their minds that are dead spiritually, who come to church. Because some people come to church just for the social aspect, the social activities. Some people come to church because that's just the way they were raised. Something you always do. You always go to church on Sundays. But these people aren't alive. They sit in the pew. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. Dead spiritually, dead to God, dead to Christ, dead to the fact that they have deceived themselves into believing they are saved when in reality is they're lost. Deceived into believing that they're very religious, doing things for God, yet Christ will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7 is not talking about the pagan world. Matthew chapter 7 is talking about people who thought they were associated with Christ, who were deceived. And the tragedy, the eternal heartbreak of the one who was religious, yet he was deceived because he didn't know Christ. Trusting in something other than Christ and him alone. Again, as I talked about this morning, their religiosity, their association with uh, Abraham. My parents went to church. My parents built the building. Good for you. It doesn't save you. Only Christ saves you. Third thing the apostle tells us to be true about the non-Christian. The non-Christian is hostile towards God. Hostile towards God, verse 7. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For the mind of the uh, mindset on the flesh is death, verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Or in the New King James, it says the carnal mind is at enmity against God. So the non-Christian obviously has a mind that is spiritually dead. Uh, if he hates God, if he's at enmity against God, and, and uh, hostile towards God, and this verse right here proves the fact the apostle is not talking about or contrasting the so-called carnal Christian with the so-called spiritual Christian. Because you can't say that a man who is a Christian is one who hates God or is hostile towards God or who has enmity against God. Again, that teaching is just not biblical. No such category as a carnal Christian. Christian has come from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Christian has one now who loves God, the one who loves Christ. And the enmity and the hostility toward God belongs to the man who's apart from God and apart from Christ. The unredeemed, the unsaved individual, not the Christian. And again, I alluded to it this morning, but the most hostile and the most enmity towards God, often by the so-called religious individuals. The one who says, I'm a believer in God, but I'm not a Christian. Uh, These people are the ones who read religious writings. They have religious sentiments about God. They like to talk about God and about God's goodness. They like to talk about the feeling they get when they uh, come to church or whatever the house of worship is. 
Yet it's these religious individuals who often are the ones who hate God and Christ most because when you start talking about God being a God of love, they're all in. But when you start talking about God being a God of wrath, they reject that God. Right? Because they want a God just like them. They, they want a God that winks at sin, a God that pretends not to see sin. Uh, they, they want a God who is some kind of stereotypical, doddering old grandfather type figure who just everybody wants everybody to get along, everybody to feel good about themselves, and everybody to be happy. Lots of churches like that. Lots of people and fellowships, churches like that. And so you start talking to these people, these so-called self-professed religious people, and declare, declare to them the God of the Bible. You talk to them about holiness and righteousness and the judgment to come. You talk about the fact that God is holy and righteous, that his justice demands that he judges sin, and the fact that he's done that through his son, through the shed blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that salvation is found in no other name except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to have a fight on your hand. You, you speak to them about the true and the living God and the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ being the only way of reconciliation between God and man. And you start talking about repentance and faith in Christ alone. And these so-called religious individuals are going to become angry with you. They're going to hate you. And they hate the God that you proclaim. Because the quote-unquote God they believe in is a God of their own philosophy, a God of their own carnal minds a God they've made up, a God that doesn't exist. A lot of people in the world that are religious, but a lot of people in the world are idolaters. Why? Because they've rejected the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And the only authority that a whole lot of people have for making the claims that they follow God and the God of love and peace is their own claim. And again, they're following a God that doesn't exist, a God that they've made up. They've rejected the revelation of the Word of God, the person of Christ, the person of God himself, the true and the living God, who justifies the ungodly, who justifies those who repent and place their faith in Christ, but he judges absolutely to the nth degree the wicked. People don't like a God like that. People don't want to hear about eternity in hell. Come to one of my funerals. I'll show it to you. They get upset with me. Just trying to tell them the truth. Out of kindness, warning them, the house is on fire. You need to escape while you have an opportunity to escape. Because judgment is coming. The wages of sin is death. Funerals are a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the gospel if people will listen with hearts that are receptive to the truth. Because everybody denies the reality of death and the fact that death is coming for each and every one of us. Funerals provide you that opportunity to make a clear contact with reality. That for those who don't know Christ, there awaits for them a terrible eternal judgment. So you talk to religious people who don't want to talk about the truth. You talk to them about, about sin, death, and hell. The God who's declared there's only two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved, the saved and the lost. And they might, you might have a fight on your hand. The fourth thing that Paul tells us about the non-believer, the non-Christian, is that he will not and cannot subject himself to the law. He cannot, will not subject himself to the law of God, verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now, this point obviously goes to the last one. If men hate God, they would in no way subject or submit themselves to God's law. Haters of God and the futility and the uh, uselessness of their unregenerate minds, they make up religions and religious systems that protect themselves, if you will, from the true and the living God, whom they refuse to acknowledge, whom they refuse to serve and worship. And as a hater of God, they really don't care what God has to say on any issue. Again, therefore, they refuse to subject themselves to him. Man, by his very nature, is an enemy of God and refuses to follow God and refuses to follow God's clear commands. Refuses to allow God to rule over him. So man is a rebel. He refuses to subject himself to God and his law. Therefore, he is the just object of God's righteous wrath. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. That little phrase, it's not even able to do so, speaks to the doctrine of total inability. Total inability. The fact that the natural man, the one who's at enmity with God, the one who will not subject himself to God and his word, the one who has his mind set on the things of the flesh that is indeed truly spiritually dead, he is in a final helpless position of hopelessness. Right? There's, no, there, there's no more final position of helplessness than to be found dead. Right? You don't have life. The absence of inability, any ability on his own to even respond to the things of God. He is unable to do so. But he's still responsible. Talked about that, I think, in a new members class just the last hour. Inability doesn't excuse responsibility. The gospel call goes out and men are called to repent and believe upon Christ. The fact that they're unable, all, all that does is prove the fact that they're culpable. That everything God says about them is true. That they're sinners in rebellion against him and they need to repent. Inability is not a pass. Inability is a declaration of the reality. They won't subject themselves to the law of God. They're not even able to do so. That means they're dead in their trespasses and sin. And again, there's no more position, final position of helplessness than to be dead. And again, that's who we used to be, right? I read it out of the book of Ephesians, right? Chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, part of the sons of disobedience. We lived there in the lust of our flesh and dulled the desires of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's where we came from, this spiritual deadness. This inability to subject ourselves to the law, to the word of God, will not and cannot. The fifth thing, the final thing Paul says here about the non-Christian, can't please God. Can't please God. For those who according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, for the mind of the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, how in the world can they? They're rebels. Haters of God, haters of Christ. They've rejected God. They've rejected God's way of salvation. Uh, they've spit in the face of God and defy him to rule over them. They've trampled underfoot the blood of the, the covenant, the blood of his dear son. They have no regard for God, no regard for his mercy, no love for God, and no regard for God's great love for mankind. Those who are according to the flesh cannot please God because God's wrath is upon them. They're his enemies. They have no peace. They're entirely outside the life of God, the life of Christ. 
just objects of God's condemnation. Well, how can a man be saved? How can a man come from enmity and hostility towards God in Christ to a position of friendship and love, to stand in the sphere of grace, in the sphere of mercy? A man can only come that way by the action of God through the mercy and grace that he himself has brought to mankind as he has interceded on mankind's behalf because of mankind's position before him. And when God intercedes and a man repents, you can come from the realm of condemnation to the realm of there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's repentance and faith in Christ alone. It's man's only hope. Verse 5 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh. Verse 9, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Only two kinds of people in the world, right? Lord willing, we'll look at the positive side next time. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this time tonight in your word that again defines for us the reality of what life is under in, in a fallen world, what life is that there's only two, two realities, only two positions to be in, either saved or under judgment, those according to the Spirit and those according to the flesh. May we be found walking in the Spirit. May we be found rejoicing uh, in the great grace that you show us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for that great declaration that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because of everything that you have done. And it's because of everything of, of who Christ is and what he has done in our stead. We're thankful for that. We worship you and thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.